If you will, take your Bibles and open them once again to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke chapter 9, we're going to pick up in verse 37 as we continue uh, our uh, series uh, from Luke. Again, the Gospel of Luke uh, chapter 9, and we'll read verses 37 uh, through 48 in just a moment. Uh, Most of you are aware that uh, many years ago, uh, I was the photographer for my high school newspaper, the, the Indian Lore, uh, which uh, still exists today. You can uh, see it in the weekly edition of the Somerville News. Now, a few years ago, when I revealed that particular truth in a staff meeting, uh, a former youth minister, the very sophisticated and uber cool, Craig Newton, informed me that that meant I was the biggest geek in my high school because I was the school photographer. Uh, With that being said, uh, I I guess I have to own that now looking back. Uh, We had the privilege, one of the things that was eagerly anticipated each and every year was a trip to Athens, Georgia, to the University of Georgia to participate in the annual GSPA, Georgia Scholastic Press Association Conference and Workshop. Uh, there at the Henry Grady School of Journalism, probably uh, alongside the Journalism School at the University of Missouri, one of the premier journalism schools uh, in the country. Now, my first trip was my freshman year, and that, unfortunately for all of us, is about 50 years ago now. But I still remember something that uh, the leader of the first workshop taught us about photojournalism, which was my interest in trying to communicate to us how to, how to shoot a memorable picture for the sake of uh, the news. And again, uh, uh, something needs to be newsworthy for it to be a news photo, whether it be the president of the local Kiwanis Club giving a, pre- uh, a check to the Little League, or whether it be a car wreck or a fire, or whether it be pictures from uh, war and riots and all of this. It has to be something people want to know something about. And then it needs to be... Uh, characterized by technical excellence. In other words, it needs to be a good picture. Composed well and printed well, uh, so the various uh, shades from black to white are reproduced very uh, beautifully uh, within that photograph. And he made this statement. He was trying to show uh, how ultimately uh, sophisticated he, he was. But he made the statement that something is what it is only in relation to what it is not. Something is what it is only in relation to what it is not. And what he was referring to was, again, the nature of black and white photography. And most of you, other than maybe Heath McPherson, uh, most of you will not know what a grayscale is. But a grayscale is simply a, a card that had shades of gray from stark white to deep, dark black. And so his point was that as you look at a photograph, you see these various shades of gray, and you define that which is light and dark by comparing light and dark. Uh, I will illustrate, is my shirt light or dark? Now, if you, you would probably say it is light because it's a little bit lighter than my pants. But I ask you the question now, is it light or is it dark? Is it light or is it dark? Now, he was making, would my lovely assistant come and please take these from me? Thank, thank you, lovely assistant. 
Now, he was making a statement deeply rooted, and I didn't understand it at the time, in subjectivism and moral relativism. Uh, things are what they are. But, by the way of comparison and contrast, we can be informed about something or someone by comparing it or them to what it is not. And so as we look at our three episodes briefly described by uh, Luke in his gospel here, I believe that while so many times we focus on the futility and the failure of the disciples, that's not really the point, is it? The disciples aren't the point of the text. But the point is by way of comparison with that which Jesus Christ is not, we see more clearly that which he is. In other words, what he is not doesn't really define who he is. He is who he is. And that's essentially and eternally true. But for those of us with finite minds, we can, by the way of contrast, see something of his eternal glory and eternal power that he brought all of those things to bear upon this very fallen world. So let's look at these uh, episodes today, beginning in verse 37, as we think about uh, our powerful, patient, and perceptive Lord. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. And an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he, is, he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. For your word, it is true, it is powerful, it is the testimony that we have to the greatness of your Son, Jesus Christ. May we see him high and lifted up. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We will soon see that Jesus is very resolutely pursuing the course to Jerusalem, to, to that which has been ordained of him since before the world was created. He is pursuing, not falling into, he is pursuing 
uh, the course that his father has outlined, the course agreed upon uh, by Father, Son, and Spirit through which they will do, they will accomplish the work of redemption. And as I've mentioned a number of times, I have found uh, the Gospel of Luke chapter 9 to be one of the most difficult, not in the sense that it's difficult to understand, although there are things that are difficult, but the very things that Jesus Christ demands, commands, and exhorts are things that I have certainly found in my own life to be exceptionally difficult to live in light of. And we see in, in the, the narrative portions of this some, some vivid demonstrations and illustrations of exactly who Jesus is. We, we begin there in verse 37, and by way of contrast, we see the, the greatness of the power of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in contrast to the futile efforts of these disciples, exposing the very frailty of their frames. And so we're told on the next day, well, what are we talking about? If you remember last week, we looked at Luke's account of what we call the transfiguration. You know, sometimes we refer to moments of great spiritual insight and exhilaration as mountaintop experiences. And again, indeed, there's a reason for that. There's a precedent uh, for that. And let me say to you, and probably uh, people would go, I wouldn't have thought that of you, Tim. But the truth is that every time we gather in this place under the, the sound of my voice, I want you to have a mountaintop experience. Not because of the spiritual cotton candy, but because of the weightiness of the revelation of the Word of God that you indeed see the glorious one, the Lord Jesus Christ, high and lifted up because it is in Him that we live in this fallen world with hope. And so they return from this mountaintop experience seeing the very revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ, hearing the voice of the Heavenly Father, the excitation that this is my Son, you need to listen to Him. They come back to the realities of the fallen world. There is a masterpiece of art painted by the Renaissance painter Raphael uh, that depicts this this, these two scenes. He, he, he collapses the transfiguration with this healing in 37 and following. At the top of the, 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 the painting, we see Jesus in his, in his glory depicted with, with Elijah and Moses. And here at, below that, we see uh, the Father, Son, and the disciples struggling with the realities of sin. A, 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 a painting that illustrates the, the, the contrast, the two realities of the glorious Christ and the realities of, of sin and, and suffering here. We, we see a picture of two fathers with two sons. Both appeal to the disciples. The heavenly father appeals to the disciples to listen to the son. The earthly father appeals to the disciples to heal his son, but they, he does it in futility. We have, again, a heavenly Father and an earthly Father. One is all-powerful. One Father is powerless. One looks to have his Son delivered from affliction. One delivers his Son to affliction for our deliverance. One is certain of his Son's victory. One 
is concerned that the afflictions will ultimately overcome his son. Both fathers rejoice at their son's victory over Satan. One son will be delivered to die again. One son will die to deliver many. What a great mirror image. If you've ever seen photographs or paintings of mountains that, are, uh, uh, that tower over a lake, sometimes you'll see this type of imagery, the, the reality of the mountain and the reflection in the lake. And so uh, in that, that painting, I thought, well, that is, that is really something for us to contemplate and to think about the, the realities of the glory of Christ. And again, the realities of life in a fallen world. And so these disciples return and, 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 and they find a, a great crowd awaiting them. And they are, they are fussing and fighting. The scribes are indicting the disciples because of their failed uh, attempt to heal uh, this this son. And so the, the father, the anguished father, makes a, an appeal and he tells them, that, he comes to Jesus and says, I beg you, verse 38, to look at my son. He is my only child. Those words are there for a reason, the only child. Again, this, this father wants his son delivered from that suffering. The heavenly father delivers his son into suffering. Even, even his whole life of the incarnation is a life of suffering. And then he describes in verse 39 the, the nature of the malady that he suffers from. And, and it speaks of, 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 of a spirit seizing him, of, of all kinds of, of things such as foaming of the mouth and convulsions. And it just shatters him. We're, we're told in other accounts it throws him into the fire. It's a very, very dangerous thing. And I I can tell you, I, I, I can sympathize with that father. Um, on the day my father died, he was gripped by a seizure similar to this. And I watched him writhe in pain on his bed and arch his back. And then in the last few years of Dale's affliction, uh, one of the things that came to her was periodic seizures. And every morning from that day forward, I would live in complete terror trying to get her up and get that anti-seizure medicine in her, even before she was awake, very good, to try to keep those seizures from coming upon This, this father was overwhelmed with concern. I mean, if, if you've ever seen a person have a seizure, I mean, you're, you have to stand there and say, this has got to kill them because it is such a devastating type. Of affliction, and so uh, this this father comes to to Jesus, and and he 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 explains the, the the situation his son is in, this terrible affliction, and he says that I came to these disciples, and they they could not deliver my boy. And look there in verse forty one, and Jesus replies to the father's request, and speak, speaks of oh faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you and bear with you, bring your son here? Now, I have to say on the surface here, that doesn't sound very gracious. That sounds pretty impatient. Uh, in fact, it may be that Jesus is actually quoting or alluding to Moses' words, describing uh, the wilderness generation and kind of 
in expectation that succeeding generations will live in their rebellion against God. This is from uh, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32. But these are, these are harsh words, and it's hard to know. Is he speaking to the crowd? Is he speaking to the Father? Is he speaking to the disciples? Well, he's probably got a word that's applicable to all of them. And so, having rebuked the crowd, he turns his attention to the young boy and the demon that, that is acting out dramatically before him, and, and we're told that he rebukes that demon. He is cast out of that boy. The boy is healed of, of, this, of these seizures, of his convulsions. He's delivered to wholeness, delivered from this great evil affliction of the devil. In the other accounts found in other Gospels, the disciples asked Jesus, well, wait a minute, what was the deal? He says, well, it's because of your little faith. Because you haven't grown robust in your faith. In fact, if you had the faith as a grain of a mustard seed, if you, you could say to this mountain, be moved, and it would be moved. So was another way. And again, remember, it's not the power of our faith. It's the power of the object of our faith. God can move mountains. And then we find the Father. When Jesus asked him, well, well, do, you, do you believe? And folks... I believe that his response should be the daily prayer of every believer. Because when Jesus asked him about his faith, his response was what? Lord, I believe. Now help me in my unbelief. If you're a Christian here today, you have believed and you are believing. But how much? How much we need to pray God, help my unbelief. And so uh, the, the, the people were, were amazed at what Jesus had done. The, the demonstration of his, his compassion and his power, a, a, a tangible victory over the very force of the evil one. And as I said, we can see who Jesus is, the all-powerful one, in contrast to who he is not, the weak and the powerless disciples. And so we see their, their, their futile effort because of their lack of faith. And then as we move forward into verse 43, we see their failed understanding because of their faulty presuppositions. A few weeks ago, uh, Randy Ferguson uh, did our Wednesday night prayer meeting. And he talked at length uh, about the realities of the expectations of the contemporaries of Jesus' day, what they expected in and with the promised Messiah. And, and so the reality is the, the, the disciples would not learn and would not understand because they had already decided they knew what, the Messiah should do and what he should be all about. And so while they are astounded at the demonstration of our Lord's power, 
Jesus says to those disciples. He brings them back to earth. Let these words sink into your ears. I think it's something like, can't you get this through your thick head, knucklehead? I know none of y'all have ever had that said to you. But, it's some, but I think it's a pretty pointed thing. Pay attention. You are not paying attention. I have already told you at least once about what I came to do. And, and you're arguing with me about it. You're refuting and disputing me. But I know why I have come into the world. And it is not to fulfill your expectations nor to accomplish your agenda. So listen. Pay attention. Again, that would seem to be exhortations that would be always fitting for us as the people of God. And so our Lord gives what I call in verse 44 the incongruent announcement. Glory and power to Two, two episodes that, that illustrate the majesty of Jesus Christ and yet he is going to enter into the, the realm characterized by certainly a lack of glory by the reality of suffering. He is going to, to go through sin and death for the sake of accomplishing his, uh, his divine mission. And so he's trying to prepare them, but they do not, and they will not, and they could not listen, therefore they could not understand. In fact, we're told there in verse 45, they did not understand this saying, it was concealed from them, and there was a purpose to that concealing, so that they might not perceive it. They, God had a plan and part of that plan is Jesus would pursue uh, that plan and carry out that plan, but he would not be really aided by the disciples because they had a different agenda. Uh, they, they had a, a different plan because of what? Because of their presuppositions that stood in their way. It caused a, a type of, of, of blindness, and it was a part of the Father's plan. His, he had designed it so that they simply would not get it. It would be through the, the accomplishment of Jesus' death and then his resurrection and then the coming of the Spirit that they would be able to put everything together. The, the, the Old Covenant, Old Testament promises and the, the symbols and the shadows and all of these things that anticipated Christ and then the realities of his teaching and his life that they were privileged to experience for three years. And, and then the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and he weaves all these things together within their hearts and minds so that they can give accurate and powerful and saving testimony to what, who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. You see, in, in contrast to the disciples and in their very faulty expectations and faulty understanding, Jesus Christ understood the reason for which he entered the realm. He had, he had no second thoughts. He had, he had, had, 
no grand illusions that he was going to be crowned as an earthly king, that he was going to sit upon a throne in Jerusalem and rule over a temporal kingdom. He was going to come and he was going to conquer sin and death and, and, and wrest people out of that kingdom of darkness, establishing a new and a better and a permanent kingdom because it was his plan done his way, not their plan done their way. And so we can see again who Jesus is in contrast, by contrast, with who he's not. He understood they did not. And then let's look at the third vignette. The disciples had frustrating priorities. They were rather frivolous, anyway, you might say, in their expectations. We're told there in verse 46 that they were actually arguing. They were jockeying among themselves as to who would be greatest in this kingdom that they had established by their faulty presuppositions. They had a way that this thing was working out, and they had already selected their offices and the roles that they were going uh, to play. And they were concerned that they would at least be the first among the 12 equals. And so they're jockeying uh, for, for position. I, I call it their, their vain argument. It, it, it's, it's futile, and it certainly had to frustrate uh, our Lord. And I, I'm thankful that we, we see in our Lord as they didn't understand his ultimate mission and, and, and certainly see, he, he watched them bicker about things that, that had no consequence for what he came to do. But he indeed is our patient Lord. Because as much as we love to ridicule and poke fun at disciples, we're equally foolish in our thinking so much of the time. And so we find here that Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their heart, decides that he is going to kind of puncture their balloon with an illustration using a small child. Now here's the tragedy of it. In fact, you don't have to turn there, but even after serving them this Lord's Supper, and he tries to, again, explain to them this is what is about to happen. Uh, them living with them, they, they have a sense of the hostility that's rising against them. After the Lord's Supper, just prior to Jesus' crucifixion, they're still bickering about the same issue. They still haven't gotten it, so to speak. And so Jesus turns their expectations on its head. That is, he, he, he begins to illustrate them what kingdom greatness is like. And, and this, this episode seems to be nuanced in a number of different ways. It may have been something that, that Jesus taught on a, a number of different occasions. He, he speaks of you must become as a child, okay, to, and be converted is, is, is that language. And, and, and that is that, that you must simply be trusting in the one who has the authority and the power to deliver. But, but the way Luke presents it uh, here is he wants these disciples to understand that, that they must be those who are humble enough to 
interact to actually receive a child. Uh, this ancient Greco-Roman society is what is called an honor society. And, and your public reputation was, was very much uh, 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 ranked in, in kind of a social standing type of, of, of thing. And so you were very concerned about how you were seen in the community. And at the lowest rung of the, the society would have been the children... And maybe the next rung up might have been those who tended to those children. It was just not held in very high esteem, as I've said uh, many times. It seems like our culture is all about the kids. And, and, and it's, it's really an irony in that we have a portion of our culture that wants to defend and even celebrate the right to murder an unborn child, and yet at the same time we're consumed with being sure that these children are completely entertained constantly, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. It's kind of, it's kind of a strange thing that we see uh, within the culture, and of course that's invaded uh, the church, but not so. That, that, and I, you know, if you're as old as me, you, you've heard this, this little cliche, uh, children are to be seen and not heard. And that's kind of the environment I grew up in, okay? To be seen and not heard, and if we can get by without seeing you, that'll be just fine too. And, and so that was more like that time. And, and so, men, you're jockeying for privilege, privileged position in this kingdom that you don't even, you're not even beginning to understand. And let me tell you something about this kingdom. It is a kingdom that is characterized by humility. By, by a willingness to identify with that which is in the lowest of status, the willingness to welcome the lowest of status by lo lowering your understanding of your own status. Not that, well, I'm I'm just so astute. I can't I can't be I can't mess with these kids. I, I just you know I, I just can't do that. No. You need to understand kingdom greatness is the exact inversion of the way the world and the culture defines that which is great. And here's the thing. Jesus is the ultimate picture of this humility, is he not? The Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 can speak of the reality that he, though being eternal God, took on the, the, the limitations and the realities of humanity and he humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death. He, he, if, if, you, if we really astute adults have to condescend to interact with a child, let me tell you something. The condensation of our Lord Jesus Christ to come and enter our realm is far greater than any adult who's ever needed to condescend to interact and relate to a child. Jesus is the great example of, con of condescending to our level. He entered our realm, and he humbled himself. He, he learned obedience by submitting to the will of the heavenly Father. He, he endured suffering patiently for the joy, for the joy set before him, for the joy of redemption, for the joy of reconciling, for the joy of establishing a kingdom unlike any other but would transcend and triumph over all kingdoms before and after. That is our Jesus. See, these, these disciples, 
They were characterized, and I'm sure they frustrated our Lord with their frivolous and, and ultimately futile expectations and the, the things that they wanted out of this kingdom. But Jesus willingly enters into the realm to accomplish the plan. We're, we're told in, in the Gospel of John chapter 12 as he again awaits the time of, of his uh, uh, betrayal and then executions. What shall I pray, Father? Should I pray that I would be delivered from this hour? But it is for this very hour that I entered into this realm. That is why I came. Not to be, not, not to be persuaded to, to try another way, but to pursue and perfect and accomplish the way that the Father had determined would be done. Again, for the sake of what? For the sake of our redemption. And so, again, we can see and understand who our Lord is by who He is not. That doesn't make Him who He is. Please understand me. He is who He is no matter what or who you think He is. He accomplished what He came to accomplish no matter what you think He did or did not do. But we can, we can see Him through the, the, the lens of these, these stories, these, these episodes, brief though they may be. He is the all-powerful one, having, having power over the demons of hell, ultimately demonstrating he has power over death itself. He, he is the, uh, the one who, who is patient with us, the, the, the willing to endure the calamities of, of this world for the sake of our redemption. He, do, he doesn't have a, a plan by which he may short-circuit the work, His work on the cross at Calvary. And aren't we thankful that He is indeed the patient one with us? He is patient with us, not, wi not willing that any should perish, but desiring that all would come to repentance. Again, He is the one who exhibited perfect and ultimate humility not, not coming and, and making all of the, the claims and, 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 and seeking the prerogatives, the prerogatives of royalty. He came and as a servant came to, to not to be served, but to serve and to ultimately give his life as a ransom for many. He is the one. He is the, the perfect servant of the Lord. He came to accomplish this, this great work, this great mission. He, he never lost sight of that. No matter how foolishly these disciples would act and how many, how many uh, just extraneous ideas that they came up with that had nothing to do with what Jesus came to do. He stayed the course. He accomplished His mission. And again, Unlike us and unlike these disciples, he's not the one that was distracted and dissuaded from doing exactly what had been planned from all of eternity past. And so again, we can talk about the disciples and, and their failure, and it was colossal. But that's not the point. 
But by seeing who Jesus is not, we get a, a better picture, a more sharper picture, a more beautiful picture of who Jesus Christ is and what He came to accomplish for us. Let's pray together. Father, how we thank You for Your truth, Your testimony of Yourself, the realities of the life that you live, the frustrations that you experience. All is a part of what you would do to pursue that which was ordained from the beginning. That you would come and you would actually redeem a people. That you would actually reconcile your people to a holy and heavenly Father. That you would save sinners from their sins. And Lord, in that and in that truth, we shall rejoice. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.